Hello and welcome. The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Going back about eight or nine years ago, a friend of mine, I'll call her Kathy, she shared a YouTube video with me. At the time, she was really in turmoil, really stressed out and anxious because she had problems with a lot of the things that she read in the New Testament. Some of the things were what Jesus said, some of it was stuff that Paul said about women, about sexuality, and she was really bothered that Christians call the Bible God's Word. Like by God's Word, we mean that it's it's His voice, it's where God speaks. And she said that she that we shouldn't call it that. We shouldn't treat it like it you know, is free from mistakes. We shouldn't treat the Bible like it's authoritative and reliable. And she shared this video with me of some teaching that she found helpful and she wanted to know what I think. Now, I want to share that video with you in just a second. It's, uh, some of you will recognize the teacher. His name is Bruxy Cavey. He's the former pastor of the Meeting House. And this is uh, just a a couple of short clips from some teaching that he did about the authority of the Bible uh, the inerrancy of the Bible and just how how necessary the Bible is. So listen to this. God has authority. Jesus has authority. He says, "Great commission: All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, not to the scriptures." The authority of scripture is scripture is just a weird way of talking that Protestants made up to fight the Catholics. You guys say the Pope has authority. We say only the scriptures have authority, and then we started talking about the Bible as though it's an authoritative thing, just because we wanted to have a different source of authority than the Catholics. That's why the Catholics called the Protestants the people who followed the paper pope. Because all they had done is imbued what the Catholics said about the pope in the Bible. And so we went out of the frying pan into the fire. Protestants were just as confused. Um, Jesus said all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Me, me, me. So when we talk about sola scriptura, when we talk about the authority of scripture, yeah, it sounds good. I know what you're trying to say, but you can set yourself up for a problem. When you talk about the inerrancy of Scripture, you're actually just starting to make an argument about something that the Bible doesn't even want you to argue about. Uh, Paul says to Timothy quite clearly that all Scripture is what? God-breathed or inspired and is, what's the next, the next word? And is, there you go. Comes from God and it's useful. You should use it. It's really useful. Try it sometime. Really useful book. Use it. That's what he says. Comes from God and it's useful. And when you believe it's from God and you use it, that's enough. Then when you build another theology about its inerrancy, what you basically say to the world is, I double, triple dog dare you to find one simple mistake. And then if you do, my whole theology falls to pieces. So I think, why do we even initiate that argument with people? (laughs) Jesus is the inerrant word of God. In other words, he is sinless and he is perfect. In other words... Bruxy's trying to communicate there that treating the Bible with authority, treating the Bible like it is free of errors, that's a mistake. It gets us into all kinds of trouble because we should be focusing that attention on on Jesus. Jesus is the one with authority, not the Bible. Now he goes on to make that point just a little bit more clearly. He says this. Your faith is built upon the concept of the inerrancy of scriptures. It doesn't allow for that kind of hiccup. Uh, That's why I'm fond of always saying that we believe in the authoritative, inerrant, infallible Word of God. And His name is Jesus. So the infallible, inerrant Word of God, and His name is Jesus. Jesus is the Word, uh, not the Bible. And when Kathy came across this video, she found that super helpful. And maybe some of you do. I, I totally get that. Maybe you feel the same. 
some of us, we're just not sure what to do with the Bible. And that's part of why we're having this conversation over these weeks called biblical. Some of the things that I shared with my friend Kathy, I'm going to share with us today because over this morning and over these weeks, I just think it's really helpful and important for us to become uh, enchanted with the scriptures for those of us especially who may have become disenchanted. But today I'd like to tell us a story. Today is story time. Now, if this were a Bible college or seminary, I would include all kinds of quotes and dates. I'm trying to summarize a lot of history in a short time, trying to make it accessible for a room full of kids and grown-ups who don't have, you know, formal Bible education. And so if you want to read more about Athanasius, you can, I, I can certainly recommend some good resources for you. But uh, we're going to hear the story of Athanasius of Alexandria, and we're going to take some, some lessons away from it. Now, this story takes place in the early 4th century. That's the 300s. We're talking about 200 years after Jesus. And it seems to me, for a lot of Christians, church history begins at the Reformation. We are very familiar with people like Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Wycliffe. Uh, but this period of church history we're looking at today isn't nearly as well known. And so a few things for us to understand by way of context, just as we begin, I, just want, to, I want to share three challenges, okay? Three challenges. The first is the challenge of empire. The second is the challenge of literacy. And the third is the challenge of unity. So let me say a word about empire. Just so we understand, for about 300 years, Christianity is an illegal religion, okay? The, the the Christians have been persecuted by Rome, and that happened in three main ways. Well, the first is to arrest the leaders, okay? The second is to destroy their scriptures, burn the scriptures, tear them up, destroy them. And the third is to take their homes away, seize their homes. Uh, and, and that was very effective, because by the fourth century, nearly everyone who follows Jesus has lost friends and family. They know someone who died a martyr's death. And, and so there's this huge fear and distrust and suspicion of Rome. The other effect of it is that Christians are scattered. scattered. And now this, the center of Christianity isn't up in Palestine. It's not in Jerusalem. The center of Christianity is now a city in northern Egypt called Alexandria. Okay. Now, because Alexandria is so far from Rome, Christians here feel a little bit safer. They're not quite safe, but they're a little safer. And so that's the first challenge, the challenge of empire. The second is the challenge of literacy. Now in this period, only about 10% of men are, are literate. Only about 2% of women uh, know how to read. Okay, Literacy is a class problem. Literacy is for the wealthy. And so, so almost no one owns a Bible because first of all, hardly anybody knows how to read. They wouldn't know what to do with it if they had one. Almost no one owns a Bible also because they're hard to get. Like you have to, you, there are no printers and publishers. There's just scribes working with pen and paper. And if you want a, a Bible, you hire some scribes to copy all those scrolls and, uh, you know, copy it and recopy it and recopy it. And it just takes forever. And so they're hard to get. The other reason that almost no one owns a Bible is because it's so expensive. You see, hiring scribes to copy the Bible, that's going to cost you the you know, the cost of about two years salary for the average worker. So imagine in our day, if a, an average salary is middle class salary is what, like 60K, 60,000 bucks. So 
imagine if owning a Bible cost you $120,000. What would that be like? So instead, you and your church gather in secret because you don't own a Bible. And so you want to, if you want to hear the Bible, you gather on Sundays and for a couple hours in secret, you listen as a, as a priest or a, a deacon reads the scriptures and explains them. That's what access to the Bible looks like. So there's also a challenge of unity. Um, last week, we saw that it's to the church's advantage for them to work together as opposed to in competition. But during that time, it's like, well, how do we know it's safe? How do I know that the person that I'm talking to is a real Christian? And when a, there's a teacher who comes along and they have some new sort of interesting ideas to share, or maybe there's a new scroll that comes along, maybe that's true and maybe it's helpful. On the other hand, maybe it's false and, and, and maybe it's actually dangerous. So where are the fences around Christianity at this time? What is, how do we know what our unity looks like? Because yes, at this time, we do have the Apostles' Creed. But a lot of the new, and I, new ideas and teachings that are springing up are things that the Creed doesn't address. In other words, the, the church doesn't yet fully know its boundaries. We don't yet have a proper fence around the yard. You know what I'm saying? And without a proper fence, if, a, if an idea comes along and it sounds like it could be true, for a lot of people, that's going to be enough. And a lot of people will accept it. And so there's a challenge of unity in defining what our unity looks like. And that's the context. That's the setup for today's story. Because in that context, uh, along comes Athanasius of Alexandria. Now, Athanasius was, was fortunate to have Christian parents who could afford to send him to school. He was educated with he studying philosophy and language and history. And in secret, he and his family would worship Christ. So they're a very faithful family. In fact, there's a story that survives from Athanasius's young life when he was a, he's a little boy. And, and one day, the Bishop of Alexandria, his name is, his name is Alexander, he's at home. And he looks out the window and he sees some boys in a lake playing a game of baptism. One of the boys pretends to be the bishop and he's saying some things and he's motioning with his hands and he's dunking the boys one at a time. Well, after that is over, the bishop, Alexander, he, he brings the boys in and he questions them. And it turns out that the kid who played bishop actually did and said everything right and that these counted as valid baptisms, except that these boys hadn't been taught or trained. They hadn't been, you know, they hadn't been gone through the, the catechism. So Alexander makes a deal with the boy and says, if you'll stop baptizing kids, you can study and you can learn from me. I'll take you under my wing and someday you'll be a real bishop. Well, that little boy was Athanasius and Alexander would become his mentor. Well, a few years later, the unthinkable happens. It's the year 313. Athanasius is a teenager. And the emperor of Rome, Constantine, he declares Christianity legal. Christianity is now legal. And for Christians, this was a game changer. They now, it's like the kingdom had come. It's like it's going to be on earth as it is in heaven. Not only is there no more persecution, now Constantine, he uses imperial money for for, to build massive worship spaces, to build seminaries for training priests and deacons and bishops. He even hires scribes to copy the scriptures. It, this was a totally new day for the church. Constantine also helped organize the church. 
So now you've got bishops who are overseeing priests and churches. Things are very much more structured. There's much more of a hierarchy. Uh, the bishops oversee priests and churches. A priest, he's like a pastor, okay? And, and a, a priest looks after a church and its leaders. Within a church are deacons, and a, a deacon is, is, a, is a, a volunteer leader. It's a lay leader, uh, kind of like a, the understudy for a priest. And, and the deacon serves the church and someday hopes to become a priest and a, or a bishop. And all of that structure and hierarchy seems to work until... A priest comes along from Libya, and he arrives in Alexandria, and his name is Arius. And he's critical of Alexander and his teaching. He actually calls Alexander a heretic. To Arius, the elites in Alexandria, they've made Christianity too intellectual. They've missed the point of Jesus. You know what I'm saying? And, and there are some big differences between the teaching of Arius and the teaching of Alexander. So Alexander, because he's concerned, he wants to get to the bottom of this, he, he gathers about 100 priests and bishops. And in the year 321, they, they sit down and they study scripture together to see if Arius' teaching is true, if, it's, if it corresponds to the truth of the scriptures. And Athanasius was there as the secretary to Alexander. In fact, Athanasius was super helpful. He showed Alexander lots of ways in which Arius' teaching actually contradicts scripture. And when the council was over, Alexander felt like they'd done a good job. They'd been very thorough. They judged that Arius was a heretic. His teaching was, was uh, unacceptable. It was unorthodox. And he was excommunicated. Now, excommunicated means you are stripped of your positions and you're not allowed to volunteer or lead. Uh, you're, gonna, you're not allowed to participate in the life of the church except as a, as a visitor. Uh, until you show signs of repentance. And that's what happened to Arius after this council meeting. On the other side of it, even though Alexander and Athanasius and, and some of the other guys think that they've put this behind them, Arius thinks these are just a bunch of narrow-minded jerks, especially that Athanasius. And he sees Athanasius as a very special kind of enemy. He calls Athanasius the black dwarf. The, Athanasius is the black dwarf. Now, so what's this disagreement over? What are, they, what are they debating about? Well, Arius taught that the elites have, have gotten the gospel wrong. They've made it hard to see the real Jesus. And if they could read their Bible, they would see that it's actually very simple. Jesus is very simple. Jesus cannot be both God and man. Like there's no half and half. You've got to be one or the other. And so Arius taught that Jesus was the Son of God, the Father, uh, but he's not equal to God the Father because as a son, he can't be eternal. He has to have had a beginning. So the Son is created. You know, he has a beginning just like you and me. He's a creature. So that's basic Arianism. And it caught on. Okay, it became really popular for a lot of reasons. One, it sounded really progressive. Like for a lot of people, this is what the church has needed to hear all along. You know, a lot of people think the church has lost its way and this is going to help us to get back on track. Uh, it also seemed pretty biblical. Arians could quote verses from the New Testament where Jesus is begotten. You know, he's God's only begotten son. Or, or where Jesus prays to the Father. Or where Jesus says things like, I don't know the day or the hour. And they would say, look... That's what scripture says. We didn't make this up. Look, guys, we're only saying what the Bible says. 
Well, another reason Arianism caught on is because it, it made Jesus more relatable. And I think this is a big deal. Because on kind of on the ground, on the ground level, people are like, how is anybody supposed to imitate a Jesus who is God? How are we supposed to follow Jesus if he's God and he can't sin? Like, of course, Jesus didn't sin when he was on earth. He's God. That's not fair. How can we expected? How can we be expected to follow him? But the Arians argue, if Jesus has a beginning, if he's a creature just like us, there's actually hope for us. Any of us can achieve what he did. Any of us can become what he became. And so in a very short while, all over the Roman Empire, people are reading Arius's his writing. His, his, it's popularized in the form of poetry. And they're singing Arian, Arius's songs. Arius made his, his theology popular and accessible in the form of songs. And so all across the empire, there's these people who are singing. There was a time when the sun was not. There was a time when the sun was not, and on and on and on. And so the church is growing more and more divided. Now, what happens next is really interesting. You know, there's some debate over whether Constantine, the emperor, was a genuine Christian or if it was just all politics. But either way, given the division that's going across the empire, he knew that he needed to bring some unity. He needed to bring some peace because this Aryan controversy was going was gonna to hurt the empire. So in the year 325, Constantine plans a, a conference. He's going to have a, a council where they're going to sort it out. They've got one mission to sort out the nature of Jesus. So Constantine sends invites out to eight, about 1,800 uh, bishops from across the Roman Empire, and they gather in the town of Nicaea, which is in western Turkey. Uh, about 318 bishops come and they bring secretaries and, and some of them bring deacons with them. Constantine was there in person. Arius was there in person. Alexander and Athanasius were there in person. In fact, here's a fun fact. Another uh, attendee of the Council of Nicaea was a bishop named Nicholas of Myra. Uh, some people know him today as Saint Nicholas. Some parents refer to this person as Santa Claus, but he was there at the Council of Nicaea. So this is the Council of Nicaea, and in May 325, they get to work. Their goal is to answer the question, who or what is Jesus? Like, what kind of being is he? What do we mean when we say Jesus? And they're going to set aside their opinions. They're going to set aside all the rhetoric and the politics. They're only going to accept an argument if it's supported by Scripture, okay? Well, during the Council... Athanasius was really helpful. He helped them to kind of name the meta problem with Arian teaching. He said, and there's a quote from, from Athanasius, he said that the Arians have met the inspired scriptures with human arguments. When they hear that the Son is the wisdom and radiance and word of the Father, they are accustomed to rejoin, how can this be? As though nothing can be unless they understand it. Do you hear that? So Athanasius is calling out the Arians and saying that the problem with the Arians is that, is that they reject ideas from Scripture as though nothing can be unless they understand it. If it doesn't make sense to them, it can't be true. And so after four months together, the Council of Nicaea reaches some helpful conclusions. Okay, this is really important. The one conclusion is that the Son of God is eternal. He has no beginning. He and the Father are what's called, this is a big word, consubstantial. 
okay? That the son and the father are the same spiritual stuff. They're the same kind of being. They're exactly equal in their substance and in their being. And the other thing that the council concludes is that in his incarnation, Jesus was fully human and fully God. Not half and half, but all and all. 100% human and 100% divine. So they, that, these are their conclusions. They write it up. They take a final vote. And out of 318 bishops and other voters, all but three bishops agree that this is the Christian faith. That's, so there's overwhelming agreement. And, and this document is what we refer to today as the Nicene Creed. Well, the council went a little further than this because they made the decision that Arius is a heretic. His teachings are, are actual da- actually dangerous heresy. The emperor Constantine uh, excommunicates him and he orders that all of the writings of Arius are, are going to be burned. And it's now illegal to own or to read the writings of Arius. Oh, well, on the other side of it, Arians are going to complain that the whole thing was a conspiracy between the bishops and the black dwarf, okay? It's a conspiracy between the bishops and the, you know, and Athanasius, who he calls the black dwarf. And as far as he's concerned, it wasn't a valid vote. It was corrupt. It was fixed. It was, and he also suggests that the whole thing was blown way out of proportion. You know, what a, what, like, how can we make such a big deal over one tiny little letter? And what he means by that is that the difference in the Greek, the written, written Greek language between the son and the father being the same substance or the son and the father being similar substance is the, really, it is the difference between the Greek word homoousios and homoiousios. It's one little letter I or iota in in Greek. And so Arians all over the empire are like, well, gosh, talk about splitting hairs. Like this is such a waste of time. All of this, splitting the empire, splitting the church over a single letter. And the Arians wouldn't forget it. They wouldn't forget it. Five months after the Council of Nicaea, uh, Alexander is back at home in Alexandria. His health is failing. He's on his deathbed. And everybody knows that Athanasius should succeed him as the bishop of Alexandria. Athanasius doesn't want it. He doesn't want the job. If he accepts, he knows he's going to spend the best years of his life arguing with heretics. So at first he runs away, and, but he eventually accepts the job. He's going to hold that position for the rest of his life. Okay, For the next 48 years, he's going to hold the job of bishop of Alexandria. And here's the thing. For 20 of those years... Athanasius is going to be in exile, living under threat of death from Arians. You see, things are really divided. It'd be really nice if once all the votes are counted, then the debate was settled, but that's not what happened. You see, a few years after Nicaea, the Arians go to Constantine and they say, you know, there's a lot we're getting a lot of complaints from the people in Alexandria they're telling us that Athanasius is a bad bishop that black dwarf he's a bad dude he's too harsh he's uncompromising and Constantine asks he gets in touch with Athanasius he asks him to compromise Athanasius please you must let the Arians back into the churches well Athanasius can't do that he, his conscience won't allow him so Constantine judges that Athanasius has been abusing his authority. He sends Athanasius into exile where he stays for three years. 
So he's in exile three years. And in fact, this happened another four times. Okay, for the next 48 years of his life, Arians are going to gain gain influence over the emperors and over churches and over bishops and over councils. And they're going to accuse Athanasius of all kinds of crimes so that he's not allowed to come back to Alexandria and do his job. In fact, in one court case against Athanasius, uh, the Arians brought a severed human hand and they said that it belonged to Alexander. So here's what, they, what they're accusing uh, him of. They're accusing Athanasius of having murdered Alexander and they're using his body parts uh, in black magic. And look, we have the proof, this severed human hand. Well, not everybody believed it, but enough people believed these things that Athanasius spent a ton of time in exile for 20 years a total of 20 years of his 48, he's, he's banned from his city, he's banned from seeing his family and his friends, and it seemed in lots of ways like Arianism had taken over. In fact, historians use the expression Athanasius contra mundum, which is Latin for Athanasius against the world, because in lots of ways that's how it seemed. It seemed like the whole world had followed Arius. The whole world had abandoned the teaching of Scripture and gone after, gone after this popular, simple Jesus. In fact, one a friend wrote to Athanasius while he was in exile and said and asked him, Athanasius, don't you see that the whole world is against you? And Athanasius wrote him back and said, If the whole world is against the truth, then I am against the world. Well, a couple more things about Athanasius. Uh, when he was in exile towards the end of his life, you know, he, he kept writing to encourage the churches. Even though he couldn't be there in person, he would still write to them and his letters would circulate throughout Alexandria. And in the year 367, one of the letters that he wrote was a list of the books and the scrolls that were passed down from him, uh, that were passed down from the apostles, which churches really should be using as they train up Christians. Now, Today, we have that, state, that same list. We have that same collection. We call that collection the New Testament. And we, we consider that, that the list that Athanasius wrote in 367, that's actually super important, not because Athanasius was deciding which books fit, but because in 367, less than 200 years after the apostles wrote these scrolls, even after Rome tried to destroy them all, the church recognized which books were reliable, inspired, necessary, sufficient scripture. That's really important. Um, now, the, the end of Athanasius happened like this. Uh, when he was judged to be too old to uh, do much harm, he was too fragile, uh, the Arians agreed to let him come home to Alexandria to die. So he was brought home, and after 48 years as bishop, 48 years after the, constel, the, the Council of Nicaea, Athanasius dies peacefully. And he's in bed surrounded by a few faithful friends. And when he died, that was a hard time because he didn't know how it would go for the church. Because maybe biblical illiteracy would be the norm. Maybe everybody is as lazy as, as Arius and can't accept an idea if it's hard. Maybe... Maybe the church won't accept an idea unless it's made to sound cool and fun and entertaining. 
Maybe we won't look at the texts and wrestle with it for ourselves and make our own judgments. And if so, maybe Athanasius' whole life's work has been wasted. Maybe he's a failure. Maybe legalizing Christianity was a mistake. And maybe it produced Christians who can only handle a a very simple, one-dimensional, colorless, pablum, youth group Jesus. And it seems to me that's how Athanasius died. Unsettled, anxious, unsure, with Jesus, his only hope. But there was a remnant who believed in the Jesus of the Nicene Creed. And not all of this remnant, not all of them were Athanasius' friends. Some of them were just ordinary priests in small towns. They they rejected Arianism. They worshipped Jesus uh, as they understood him in Scripture, according to the Nicene Creed. Not only is he true, he's actually more beautiful, more dynamic, more colorful, more glorious. And if you'll do the work, they recognize we can see him on every page of the Scripture. And in the year 381, at the Council of Constantinople, not 10 years after the death of Athanasius, not 10 years after he went to be with Jesus, bishops from all over the empire, they gather again. It's like Nicaea 2.0. And they reaffirm the Nicene Creed with a couple of uh, clarifications. They condemn Arianism, and Arianism largely goes away after that. I will say every once in a while, Arianism springs up again, like in the teachings of Islam, in the te- in, especially in the, the Latter-day Saints and the Jehovah's Witnesses. So it's largely gone, um, and where it isn't gone, it has shown up with under different names. Now, that's the story of Athanasius. I want to just spend a few minutes, though, drawing some lessons from this story. There's a few things we can learn. One is a, just a lesson about technology that I just think is so cool. Athanasius wrote thousands of pages in an age before computers. Just imagine, imagine writing when there's no backspace, when there's no copy paste, when you can't, you know, CC a whole bunch of people in a letter, you know, before you can unsend a message that you realize you sent before it was ready to go. Everything in this time is handwritten. You So you only write something down if you're committed to that, to the idea. You know, and if somebody has taken the trouble to write to you, it must have been important. And if Athanasius could see some of the tools that we have access to today, I think it would blow his mind. Many of us here, we have an app on our on our smartphone. So many of you, right? Show of hands, how many of you have a, a, a Bible app on your phone? Yeah, most of us here. So the Bible is app on your phone. It's searchable. You can do a, a search by word. You can open up the Bible by a certain book and a passage that you want to read. Some of you, you can read it in multiple languages and multiple translations. To Athanasius, that kind of technology would be unimaginable. And I think if he were here, he would say that we are far more blessed than we realize. Well, there's another lesson to learn about, and, and it's regarding the Bible kind of like what the Bible is. Like, I'm amazed that so long ago, uh, these first Christians are so skilled at interpreting scripture. They have such a well-developed, careful, nuanced view of scripture and reliance on scripture. And their beliefs about scripture are that it is authoritative and it is 
uh, inerrant and it is sufficient and all of these big words that we use to describe the scriptures and that's right there in the teaching of these early church fathers. They're constantly teaching and defending ideas and correcting each other and asking, yeah, but is that really what scripture says? I don't know, but what about this quote over here? Yeah, you're right, but what about this quote over here? And they're doing that, they're quoting scripture because they realize that scripture corrects us, not that we correct the scriptures. In fact, Athanasius refers to the Bible as the divine scripture. He uses words to describe it like unerring. He he says, I found this quote, quote from Athanasius where he said that the sacred and inspired scriptures are sufficient to declare the truth. Well, that's a great word for us today, isn't it? In some places, Athanasius calls scripture God's word. He calls the Bible God's word. And so, and it, as a side point, I just think this is really important too. Even the Arians had a high view of scripture. Like, Arius isn't going around in this time claiming that the Bible is full of errors. Like, hey, guys, don't take the Bible so seriously. The, the, all that stuff about Jesus and the Father being one, that those verses don't belong in there. Let's just focus on Jesus. No, not at all. That's not what Arius is doing. This is never a debate. The, the Arian controversy was never a debate over what the Bible is. It was never a debate about what role the Bible should play in the formation of our theology. This was always a debate over what the Bible means. And so the lesson here is if we have a faith community in which to read and interpret the Bible and push and pull each other and wrestle with these texts together, we actually have everything we need. Okay? That's one of the lessons I think that Athanasius teaches us, and that's about the Bible. Another lesson we learn from Athanasius in this story is about our expectations. This story really challenges us to reflect on what we assume and what we expect about Scripture. It seems to me one reason that some of us have the complicated relationship with the Bible that we have is maybe because we have some assumptions, we have some expectations that we shouldn't have. Now, all of us do this. All of us bring assumptions to the Bible. All of us bring expectations to the Bible. The Arians did too. And so Athanasius called them out and he would say that Arius was right in the sense that scripture is sometimes hard to understand. But Arius was wrong in the sense that some ideas that are hard to understand are still true. Arius is wrong in the sense that some of the ideas that are hard to understand are still important. And Athanasius, Athanasius would say that the Arians were right, that there are some truths about Jesus that are clear and they're easy to understand. But Arians were wrong to assume that every truth about Jesus must be equally clear and must be equally easy to understand. And so I think about my friend Kathy, who shared with me the video that we saw earlier for, for her the answer is to not put too much weight on the Bible. She would say that the Bible is written by people. People make mistakes. But Jesus is the perfect word of God. And so what Kathy did, what a lot of us will do, is we'll set aside the Bible, or most of it, because we assume that it's actually not that necessary in order to know Jesus. We assume that we know better than the apostles who wrote it. We assume that we know what they would have said if they had been through 
what we've been through. We like, right? Like we assume that we know what the apostles would have said if they've seen what we've seen. And if they could see our culture, we, we assume that we know what they would have said. We trip over the Bible, not because of the things that the scripture says, but because of what we assume that it should say and it doesn't. That's a big difference. There's a problem with some of our expectations, some of our assumptions. Like, just so you know, I don't think Arius was stupid. I don't think he was even, I can't even prove that he was evil per se. I just think that he refused to challenge his own assumptions. Okay, I just refused. I think he refused to check his own expectations and assumptions about scripture. And I think there's a warning in here for us. We've got to check those assumptions because a lot of them just aren't true. A lot of the things that we assume should be true about the Bible are informed by the culture. They're informed by our own opinions and biases and privilege. And we won't know unless we bring those assumptions to the Bible and ask, does the Bible correct those? Or does the Bible agree with those assumptions? Like what I told Kathy is that when we come to the Bible and it, it challenges us and corrects us, and even if it offends us, that's not time to put the Bible down. That's not time to put the Bible away. That's how we know that the Bible is doing what it's supposed to do. It's challenging our assumptions. It's correcting our expectations. That's really important. That's beautiful. It's painful, but it's so good and good for us. Well, one last lesson is a lesson about uh, diligence. I'm not sure this is the right word, but I really wish Athanasius were here. You know, I, I, I sometimes think back over the ministry training that I've received and the advice I've gotten about like pastoring, about church planting, about teaching the scriptures and being simple and sh- brief and quotable and funny, and memorable and things like growing my brand and increasing my market share so that more and more Christians will come to this church and not to other churches in the city. And if I could ask Athanasius for his feedback on on this, you know what, I, I think I know what he would say. I think he'd say this to me. And I think he'd say this to the whole church. I think he'd say, he'd say, we didn't go through all of that so that you could get more likes and retweets. We didn't go through all of that and endure excommunication and exile and councils and debates and accusations. We didn't go through all of that so that you could create consumers of churchy goods. Like we laid the foundation, we helped establish the fence, we helped establish the boundaries, but the work isn't done. So be diligent, get to work. That's what I think he'd say to us, you know? If I could, I'd even ask Athanasius, Athanasius, how would you respond to the idea We believe in the authoritative, inerrant, infallible word of God, and his name is Jesus. Athanasius, what would you say to that? I think after hearing his story, I think we know what he would say. He would say, okay, great, but that's what Arius said. So which Jesus is it? Which Jesus do you mean? You say, we believe in the authoritative, inerrant, infallible word of God, and his name is Jesus. Well, what, which Jesus and guys, I think he's right. Now, I'm not trying to attack Bruxy Cavey. Am I, am I saying that Bruxy is a, an Aryan? Absolutely not. Am I saying I'm a better person or a better theologian or a better pastor? I'm not saying any of that. This is not about Bruxy. And Bruxy is just one of a handful of other teachers who have become popular by saying these things. But listen, 
The only reason we have anything to say about Jesus is because of what we read in the Bible. All right? The, they didn't come up with the Nicene Creed by lowering their expectations of the Bible. They had a problem. They had a debate. They had, a, an, they had the tension and division, and they brought their questions to the Bible. They stuck with it. They wrestled with it, debated, discussed it, asked each other questions, corrected each other. And as they wrestled with the text, you know what happened? God's word gave them what they needed, and the church was helped. And it seems to me, you know what? Now it's our turn. It's our turn. Thanks for listening to this message from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Feel free to copy and share these resources, but please don't alter the content in any way. We invite you to visit us online again soon at www.benediction.church for more teaching and information about how you can join us in serving and praying that it would be in Hamilton as it is in heaven.